The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to Lit Up. This week I have Mickey Rapkin chatting to me. Mickey has written a book. It's a children's book called It's Not a Bed, It's a Time Machine. But I think what you might know him for is writing the book that the movie Pitch Perfect was based on. So Mickey was a a cappella man himself, and you'll hear about that in this show. But he wrote a book called Pitch Perfect, The Quest for Collegiate a cappella Glory. He's also written for so many magazines. He was an editor at GQ for eight years. He's worked for the New York Times, um, Entertainment Weekly, or his work has appeared there. And now he lives in Los Angeles with his boyfriend. And I think you'll love this episode as much as I loved making it. And I hope you enjoy the podcast. Mickey Rapkin, thank you for coming on Lit Up. Oh, thanks for having me. Now, we're here to talk about much of your work. You're a writer. Most recently, you've written a children's book that's called It's Not a Bed, It's a Time Machine. I'm so excited about it. I am too, because going to bed was always a bit of a trepidatious thing when I was a kid. Exactly. This is where the book came from. It's like, I don't have kids, but I'm constantly putting my friend's kids, you know, to bed and reading them bedtime stories and they never want to go to sleep. And I always think going to sleep is like the best thing because as soon as you close your eyes, it's nine hours go by and there's breakfast on the table. It's amazing. I was like, they should get it. So I wanted to write something we get kids excited to go to sleep. And how did that process start? Because we should say you're a journalist yes. and writer and you've written everywhere. You were at GQ for many, many years. Yeah. I think you started at Details. Yeah, exactly. And then you have written three other books. Yes. The one that probably catapulted you to fame and fortune, I hope, <laughs> was Pitch Perfect. Now, can you give me the full title and how that came about yeah, as well? Yeah, of course. It was um, Pitch Perfect, the quest for acapella glory. Yeah, it was amazing. I was working at GQ and uh, this book agent called and he said, you should write a book. I really like your writing. What would you write a book about? And I said, the only thing I want to write a book about is college acapella groups. And he was like, that's a horrible idea. What else do you have? And I was like, no, it's really cool because you, you know, we just found out that we went to the same college. That's a miracle. And I went Cornell and they had this huge acapella scene and I sang in one of those groups and I was like, no man, this is cool. I'm telling you, it's like, we, there's all these groupies and they record these albums and go on tour and it's this crazy world that all these people have experienced, but nobody knows anything about. And he's like, okay, if that's what you want to write about, you should write it. And this is where I have to tell you, because I was saving it for the pod. Oh, no. My first experience with a cappella. So I was an exchange student at Cornell in 2002. So it is this serendipitous thing. And I was lucky enough to live in a house with 10 others 
in this house called Big Yellow. So it was this incredible house that I was lucky enough to kind of slip in to. But one of the, I think the first or second week I was there, one of my roommates said, oh, we're having a wine and cheese night, which is A, (laughs) the height of sophistication. It's already my favorite story. Yeah. So I'm thinking, oh, okay, I can, you know. Yeah, pull out that box of wine. Get into this. So so many people arrived and he kept saying, we have a surprise. We have a surprise. So it was, you know, everyone's mingling and I'm so happy. And then all of a sudden the male a cappella group comes in and just starts singing. And I thought I was in a movie <laughs> because everyone was just, everyone knew what was happening. Right. But I was awestruck. Also coming from Australia where like that, you just don't really understand that that actually happens. Men don't just spontaneously start singing. No, and in and in such an earnest way. Oh, that's the best part. It's so earnest. So this is why when we I made the connection that not only had you written the book that this film or the three films yeah. are based on, which I love, um, but that you'd actually been to the school and perhaps been in that group. There was a bunch of all-male groups at Cornell. Would you remember which one you saw? Maybe if you said the names. They all I, such... I was in Cayuga's Waiters, a.k.a. The Waiters, which crazy story. A couple of years ago, I wrote a story for GQ about the acapella group because they got kicked off campus for hazing. Because they were such bad, tough... We had no hazing. When I was in a fraternity also at the time, that had a ton of hazing. The acapella group, we did not have hazing. Out of the blue, I get this phone call. The group the, the group had been around for like almost 70 years and they got disbanded. for. They got busted for this crazy... I mean, listen, hazing is horrible, but it was so swift. I feel like, like the university made an example out of the acapella group. I don't know, it was I a wild, it was a bizarre story. of an acapella group being, you know, bad enough no, to get kicked off. No, neither did my editor at GQ, who was like, yes, you immediately need to get on a bus and go to Ithaca to write this story. So let's rewind. Yeah. Your agent says, this is a terrible idea. Yeah. But is that when it just hooked in you and you thought, I'm going to do this anyway? No, he was like, what other ideas do you have? And we kicked around a couple of ideas. And then to his credit, he came back and he was like, listen, if acapella groups is really the thing you want to write about, that's what you should do. And I was like, great. And I put a book proposal together because the book was a true story. And we were lucky enough to get a couple of offers. And then I started reporting it while I was working at GQ. So I, I, the book followed three different college acapella groups over the course of a school year. So I would leave my job on like Thursday night, fly to meet these groups, sometimes on campus, sometimes on their spring break trips, sometimes in a recording studio, sometimes at a competition. And I did that for the whole school year. And I mean, it was exhausting. It, it was like absolutely insane. I feel like I did it like the last year. I was like, I think I was like 29 or something. It was like literally like the last possible year I could have Mustered that I had the, the energy. energy to do this. But it was, I mean, it was amazing. I like fell in love with all these kids and their stories. And then while I was writing the book, I got, my agent called me. He's like, do you want to have lunch with Elizabeth Banks? I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, someone passed her the book proposal. She went to Penn, the University of Pennsylvania, which had a huge acapella scene. She loves this world. She wants to talk to you about turning it into a movie. 
I was like, yeah, I want to have lunch with Elizabeth Banks. We had lunch. She was like, I want to make your book, like bring it on. But for acapella groups, I was like, this is amazing. We hugged goodbye. I was like, I'm never going to see this woman again in my life. Because when Classic I worked- Classic Hollywood. Exactly. I was like, I worked at GQ. Everyone had these op- articles optioned all the time. Nothing ever happens. But anyway, I was- could not have been more wrong. She would email, how's the writing going? I can't wait to see chapters. The day the book came out, you know, she took it to Universal, uh, the studio in, in LA, and they bought the rights. I mean, it was wild. Did you do research on the history of a cappella groups? Because that's something that I don't think many people know about if you yes. are out of the scene. I did a bunch of research, you know, about like the Yale Whiffenpoofs which was one of the first groups and they do these crazy international tours every summer. It's like wild. A lot of those kids take off their whole last year of college just to focus on being in the acapella group. Who comes up with these names? Can you mention, well, also, do you know why the Whiffenpoofs are the Whiffenpoofs? I definitely knew at one point and now I have no idea. There was, (laughs) there was a, there's a Whiffenpoof song. I think they're maybe named after that. I just but wanted I to say no it twice idea. in a sentence. Oh, it's hilarious to say. But who are the three that were in your book? They were this all-girls group from University of Oregon called DeVisi, who had this amazing story where sort of just like in the movie, they'd gotten to the finals of this competition and everyone thought they were going to win and they didn't win and all but two of the girls graduated and they were coming back they, you know, with a whole new lineup to like avenge their sisters and finally win. So it was them. Then it was this all guys group from the University of Virginia called the Hullabahoos, which basically were like the frat guys of college acapella. They were just like dudes, like bros who like got drunk a lot and sang and were hilarious. And then the third group was the Tufts Beelzebubs which was an another all-male group, but who like really took it so seriously. Like they have these proud traditions and I was following them over the course of the school year recording an album. What I love about all these stories is the stakes for everyone involved are huge. You know, they were like really felt pressure to deliver an amazing album. And these girls really felt pressure to win and avenge their sisters. And the Hullabahoos were like so professional about having fun. Like they just wanted to have fun at all costs. I mean, it was it really was like a wild year. I went with them to basically these, these guys from Virginia, these like party Dudes. You must have partied with them a lot. I really tried not to. Oh, I was yes, like, I'm a professional. But then like, I, I was really trying to be like a fly on the wall and be as invisible as possible. But my sort of favorite story from the whole thing was the Hullabahoos had gotten hired to sing the national anthem at a Lakers game, at like a huge basketball game at the Staples Center in downtown LA. And I mean, this was like going to be the culmination of their year, basically. And I met them in LA and... I don't know, we had fun for a couple of days and then we were supposed to meet outside the Staples Center. And I'm out there, you know, at the appointed time calling them, guys, where are you? Where are you? They're like, oh, we're on the highway. We can see it in the distance. They're like, I don't know. There's like, there's so much traffic. We might just get out and run. Like it was this dramatic thing and I'm calling and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and they totally missed it. They didn't get there in time for the game. LA traffic. LA traffic is no joke. And they just totally missed it. They showed up like 10 minutes after the game had started. We later found out that the the organist, like the piano organist, 
played the national anthem. Like that's the contingency plan. But anyway, we still had these amazing tickets because part of the gig was like, you stay and watch the game. So we end up sitting like we weren't courtside, but we were very, we had amazing seats and they were just sort of like sulking. Like half of them were just sulking and depressed. Like I can't believe we missed this. And the other half were like, well, we're like still here at the game and we're just like laughing and like drinking a million beers and having fun. I mean, it was wild. But it's also so fun to sing. I was thinking about it last night and I thought I would definitely join the work choir if we were going to go sing at lunch for 40 minutes instead of browse online. Yeah. This is one of my favorite things about the, the success of the movies, which is like, believe me, no one is more surprised than me that a, a trilogy of movies was made about college acapella singing groups like that when I was in college that like the idea of that would have blown my mind. But this guy I went to high school with became a, a music teacher, a high school music teacher. And we recently got back in touch and he told me that they have so many guys coming out to audition for the acapella groups in their high school because of the movies. Like not that it made it, I don't want to say made it cool, but maybe it made it, I don't know, maybe it made it cool or made it exciting or seem fun or, I don't know, the, the, the movies, the success of these things, it's all about, you know, finding a family in an unlikely place, which is what choir is for so many people who, you know, are in high school and feel lost or, I don't know, don't feel comfortable in their own skin and they join the singing group and it gives them confidence or it gives them a family. So that makes me so happy that kids are out there starting to sing because of this. Well, it does seem sad not to find a whole community just because A, it doesn't seem accessible to you or so few people are being involved. And I was like desperate to be in one. Like when I got to Cornell, I was like, those guys look like they're having more fun than anybody else. I want to be a part of that. And I auditioned four times. I like kept going back. I was like, you know what? I just want to give it one more time. I was like so embarrassed, but I really wanted to do it. Every time I'd see them on campus, I'd be like, I really want to be up there. And so then, how did you finally get in? What I, I'm like, what I, changed? I'm still not sure if they just took pity on me and they were like, clearly this guy is determined. Maybe we can teach him how to sing. Or I mean, I don't know if I got uh, marginally better in time. I have no idea. But I mean, being in that group changed my life. You've having lunch with Elizabeth Banks. Yes. What is the process and how involved do you get to be in the film? You know, I, I have had like an, a miraculous experience. Like, you know, I, they tell you you're never going to hear from these people again. You're going to sign away all the rights. They're not going to keep you included. You know, all of that stuff. And none of that turned out to be true. You know, she's like, I, there's this amazing screenwriter I want to bring in, Kay Cannon. And I met Kay and she's like, I, she's an, she was writing on 30 Rock at the time, I think. She's an amazing writer. And she like pitched me the whole opening scene right there on the spot. I was like, this is unbelievable. Anyway, the book comes out. Elizabeth Banks and Kay go to pitch it to a bunch of studios. And Universal buys it. Kay writes the script. Then it like, takes a couple of years. Every six months, I get a phone call. Elizabeth Banks and her husband, Max, are calling. They're like, listen, we're just letting you know, we still love this. Don't worry. We're on it. We're on it. I was like, okay. Meanwhile, like the studio had sent over a contract. I didn't even have a lawyer. I was like, they're never going to make a movie about acapella groups. I was like, let me just sign this contract immediately so that nobody changes their mind and I can get paid. And the contract was like 
weighed like five pounds. It was like every contingent idea in there. You know, this is what you'll get paid if it gets turned into a coloring book. This is what you, I mean, like it's so detailed and I literally didn't even read it. I just signed it. I was like, great. Anyway, it took like four or five years and I got a phone call out of the blue one day from Max Handelman, Liz's husband. He was like, we're going to make this movie. I was like, you have got to be kidding me. (laughs) He's like, no, I'm not kidding. We're going to make the movie. And like, I don't know, three months later I was in, they invited me down to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where they were going to film. I was there for a week. I could not believe it. Like, and with the casting process, do they just say, this is who we've decided? Yeah, I'm not involved in any of that. You know, Kay would email me while she was writing the script every once in a while. You know, could this happen? Could that happen? But no, I mean, it was a miracle. I got down there on set and I was still like 10 people are going to see this movie. You know, Anna Kendrick had already been nominated for an Oscar, but nobody in America knew who Rebel Wilson was. And it was still an acapella movie. I was like, who's going to see this? And I will never forget this moment. They have these people on set called transpo guys. You know, they're transportation people who drive vans and they've, you know, ferry everybody around. I mean, making a movie, it's like a city of people. It's a crazy amount of people that are involved and they drive people, you know, from set, whatever they need. Anyway, I'm in the van with this guy. He's got to be probably in his 60s, like a real grizzled Louisiana guy, you know, like real, just like a dude. And he, he was like, oh, man, what are you doing here on set? I was like, oh, well, you know, I wrote the book that they based the movie on. He's like, oh, my, get out of here. He's like, we love these kids. We want this movie to be a hit. We're all pulling for it. I, I was like, if this guy wants to see this acapella movie become a hit, I was like, maybe this is going to be a thing. I was shocked. And anyway, I saw a couple performances when I was on set and I was, I, I was, I, my, my, literally my like head exploded. It's like unbelievable the amount of people this movie has touched. And also like I, I do a lot of travel writing for magazines and I'll be somewhere, you know, I was just in Morocco doing a travel story and I happened to be turning on the TV in the hotel room and Pitch Perfect 2 was on with Arabic subtitles. I was like, this is, I, I will never take it for granted for one second like every time something like that happens I get chills I'm like this is insane and then so obviously if it takes five years for it to happen you've kind of completely moved on with your life obviously like you do yeah I had already written and I wrote a book right after that about theater camp called theater geek like I was my, I was totally, I was still working. I still had a day job. I was working at GQ. I was, you know, mentally busy. So you, you're here on a travel yes, assignment. Yes, here in Australia, yeah. Who's that for? For Men's Journal. Okay. Yeah, I'm doing a story on Western Australia, a sort of outback, outback adventure story. Well, we have to wait till it comes out to yeah, talk exactly. about it more. But coming back to children's books, because yeah. I know a lot of people listening are writers, and I think I myself have my children's book in my head Write that it. I just have Do to it. get it down. But what was the process like for you? Did that the idea come first and then did you write it and then find an illustrator? Yes, what this, happened? I just had this idea one day. I was reading their, their kids' books all the time. And I just, you know, had this idea of like, literally, if you're a kid, you fall asleep, suddenly it's morning, where did all that time go? And I sort of I just had this idea, 
oh, it's not a bed, it's a time machine. And like, could this be a story to get kids excited for bed? And I wrote a version of it that was like a thousand words, which is like, I think the final text in the book is like 250 words. Like I have incredible respect for people who write children's books. You need to tell a story in such a tight amount of space. But anyway, so I wrote this thing and I sent it to my book agent, the same one who sold the Pitch Perfect book. And I was like, hey, I, I had this wild idea for a children's book. I know this business is really hard, but anyway, here it is. See what you think. And he was like, I don't know that much about children's books, but this is a funny idea. Let's give it a shot. He sent it around to a bunch of publishing houses. One editor wrote back. She's like, I love this idea. This is not what you sent is not a children's book, but I love the idea of this. Let's see if we can work on it together and if it gets to a place where it is a bilk, maybe I'll buy it. I was like, okay, what do I have to lose? I don't care. So I was, you know, doing revisions for her. And the best piece of advice she gave me was in a great children's book, the words should not work without the pictures and the pictures should not work without the words. So I was like, oh, okay. That's like, that makes sense to me. So she was like, you know, do a version of the story. And she marked a bunch of the text and was like, this could be a drawing. This should be a drawing. This should be a drawing. Cut this. So I revised it. And, you know, you put in there, you know, like these are the words on this page. And this is, you know, in theory, what an illustration could be. Anyway, so we traded a bunch of drafts back and forth. And finally, she was like, I really love this. I'll present it to the team and see if they'll buy it. And it's Macmillan as the publisher. It's a, an imprint there called Imprint. And anyway, they found an illustrator. They sent me a link to her. They, I, like, I think in, I had like consultation. And they sent me a couple of people and they sent me this one artist and they were like, we really hope you dig her. We think her work is amazing. And I clicked on the link and her work was amazing. She had all these drawings of kids who were excited about various things. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. She agreed to do the book. They sent, you know, a couple months later, I out of the blue, I got like a PDF of some black and white drawings, just like rough sketches. And I literally like almost started to cry. It was so lifelike. It was just like, oh my God, this is it. Like there it is. Um, you know, we gave some notes and she did an amazing job and brought this whole thing to life. And it's, I don't know, it's like, honestly, like I hold the children's book and I have like immense excitement for it. Like of all these crazy things that I've worked on, this little book makes me so happy. I have a niece now, a four-year-old niece, and talking to her and being with her has tapped into different parts of my imagination really? that I imagine happens when you have kids or when you spend lots of time with them. I've been away for so long. I haven't spent as much time with her as I right. can now, but it, you can get so weird as well, which is what I love <laughs> about kids. And they just, they're, they're with you. Yeah. I've, for, then it's so funny. You like have these panic attacks about these ideas and you're like, wait, is a time machine too complicated? Is a kid going to understand what that means? And then you're like, now nah, they get it. They get everything. They get everything. We just stop getting things or we get rigid when we grow exactly. up. When I had the early galleys, a friend of mine came over. She brought her daughter who was, I don't know, probably four. And she read her the book to her. She read the, my friend read the book to her daughter. And I was staring at, at this kid's face and like watching her take it in. And I was like, this is amazing. 
Like I'm about to do like a little book tour for it and I can't wait. Oh my to gosh, see these that's going to be great yeah, reading the book. It's going to be hilarious. It's interesting too that when you just mention like all the things you've done and what actually brings the joy. Yeah. Versus the things that are meant to feel great. But it'll be these little faces. Yeah, I, I'm like, it's my dream that I'm going to like walk into a friend's house or a stranger's house and just see it there. I'm excited for kids to get it into their hands. And it's such a long process. Like that's what I didn't realize about children's books because the, you know, the drawings take a while and then actually the production of printing these books. So I think I sold this idea like almost three years ago. So finally the book is coming out. So that part of it is amazing. Like you just want to like birth it into the world already. Were you always a magazine writer when you started out? Yes, that was sort of my first... Yeah. I mean, I worked in New York for 10 years, like on staff at magazines, you know, going to the office every day, that sort of thing, before I quit to just go freelance. Even when you write your magazine pieces, what the person says ends up shaping what the piece is about yeah. or how you enter it yes, exactly. in a certain way. Is that, I'm wondering, is that how you work or have you found that you come up with a structure a bit and then... I feel like you go into it with an idea of what you think the story is about, but then you have to listen and let the subject inform you what the story is. And with a travel piece in particular, you have to let... The experience happen. Yes, you yeah. can't do too much ahead of time. That is for sure. I just did a piece in Morocco um, for National Geographic Traveler about how to experience Morocco through music. And so I had done a ton of research, but so much of that was just dictated by what I saw um, and who I, the people that, that, that I happened to meet and their stories. How do you, as a freelance writer, yeah. keep it going? Yes. You, as a freelance writer, you're constantly, you just need to like feed the beast. You know, you've got to keep the next assignment, the next assignment. I'm lucky because I... I worked on staff at a bunch of magazines and those people have gone to other places now. So that network, you know, naturally has grown, but it is, I mean, it's getting harder and harder. I feel like it's a depressing topic. It's like a bit of a slog. Do but, you always have a kind of longer form project going on? Yeah, yes. I always feel best when I have a bunch of different irons in the fire. Um, and and the part of the reason I moved to LA was to get into screenwriting. So I've, I feel like I'm, I'm sort of on parallel tracks at once, you know, like I have the screenwriting track and things that I'm working on there. And then the children's book is a new avenue. And then the magazine writing, you have to listen. I, I feel so grateful. It's like that I get to work on these things. I feel like my life, my work life feels really full of exciting things and different things. And I mean, they're so different. Like the children's book is hilariously different from some of the other things, but it also opens up, like you were How saying, a, a part in your mind and in your heart. Like it's really, I feel like also I feel like living in LA, I've gotten cornier and more in touch with all of those LA things. How do you know now when your writing is better or when you've, when you've got a good I think script. you can feel the difference yourself. I hope, you know, knock on wood, but I feel like sometimes when I'm writing something now and I'm reading it, it feels like, oh, this is, this feels grounded. This feels like the characters are making decisions that, 
you can understand why they're making the decisions they're making and each scene builds to the next. I don't know, just the mechanics of it feel stronger. And also the response from other people is a huge difference. And I guess the script writing, I'm not going to liken it to writing a children's book, but in that way that it's visual. Yes. I imagine letting go of the beautiful descriptive language that you have, especially yeah. in a magazine feature or a you know, a book. No, it's the like freedom. plot, plot. At least the kinds of thing I'm writing now, it's like plot, plot. And you rely Whereas on... The, every scene needs to move the story forward. Why is the scene here? Why are they having this conversation? Does it move it forward or not? And if it doesn't, like you have to cut it. It's a, it's a totally different art form. The whole thing is different. And are you already working on another children's book? Yes. It's going to be a series, this one. It's going to be a series of books that aims to get kids excited about things that they're typically afraid of. So the next one is it's not a school bus. It's a pirate ship because I always think back like, I, I mean, I'm listen, I'm 41 and I can remember the first time I got on a school bus. Like it was yesterday. Like I remember who I sat with wow. that I cried. I mean, I remember all of it and that's, I don't feel like kids are really taking the bus to school is really can be really scary, but it doesn't need to be. So in this one, you know, the kid is afraid to get on the bus and his mom, you know, is encouraging him. And as he's getting on the school, the school bus driver is like, there's nothing to be afraid of. You know, it's not a school bus. It's a pirate ship. And he, it's, it's about like using your imagination to make something fun. So he meets a friend, this girl on the bus, and she's way more adventurous than he is. And, you know, she encourages him and they have this sort of adventure. And then, you know, they eventually get to school and then he's afraid to go into Spoiler alert, at the end of the book, but he's afraid to go into the classroom and she's like, it's not a rug, it's a magic carpet. So he's like, oh, it's like everything. I, I really feel like, listen, I don't have kids and I know how hard it is from watching my brother and watching my friends raise their kids like that. It, that job is no joke. I have tremendous respect for parents, but I feel like so, uh, so many of these things that kids are afraid of they can do better with excitement. When I'm thinking of it with imagination. Like I think we can use our imaginations to treat every life as an adventure. I hope. I, what else have we got? Why not? No, that, it's, all, I mean, it, it's all a point of view. If I could go to sleep thinking of a time machine versus the nightmare I might have. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? My like dream is that the book speaks to people and it sells so well that there's like parody books, you know, like whatever it is, like some like adult version of that. I think there should be adult, adult, adult children's books. Well, now there's all these podcasts for adults to get them to go to sleep. You know, there's like adults reading, you know, calming, soothing stories to get you to fall asleep. It could just, there could be a lot just to get adults to go to work. Yeah. I feel like being an adult now is like, actually everything is like framed in some sort of child mindset to get you to do something. You don't want to do, whereas it's. Yeah. We're all like adulting in quotes, like everything, like we're still kids. Is there a kid's book you remember from your childhood that's impacted you? I have not seen this book in a million years, so I hope that it doesn't have some like dark twist. But when I was a kid, I used to read this book, Blueberries for Sal. There was a blueberry bush near um, where I grew up. And I always like, I honestly don't even remember what the book is about, except that it was called Blueberries for Sal. And he would go around and he would pick blueberries and fill his bucket. And I just remember every summer, like feeling like I was, I would like get my pail and in the, I just remember the pictures were like, 
his pail was like overflowing with blueberries and you need like a million blueberries to fill a pail. Like they're very small, but I just remember, I don't know. I would like imagine that I was Sal and I was filling my blueberries. I don't know. I think, not, we, not can re- classic I think story. we could relive that. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like sometimes when I, even now as an adult, I'll see blueberries and I put them in my like basket at the supermarket and I think like, Oh, I'm Sal. See? Perfect. I guess. We're always going back to those childhood memories. Exactly. Oh, well, thank you so much for chatting. Thank you so much for having me. The big thing I took away from this episode was to write about what you love and what you're obsessed by. The fact that that agent uh, said to Mickey, acapella sounds like a really bad idea. You shouldn't write about that. Just made me laugh and made me so happy that he stuck to his guns and did it. Because obviously it was so specific and it got into all the little nuances of that world that it came to life and then had such a bigger life that has touched so many people around the world. So I think that was it. If you're obsessed with something and you have a book that captures that world so beautifully, please let me know and I might be able to track down that author and we can bring that world to life on the podcast. So tweet or Instagram me at Lit Up Show. I can't wait to hear what your obsessions are. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.